0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 23, which I entitled, Shining a Light in a Dark Place, which to some extent can be really good, but in another way can be uh, sort of shocking. We'll see that God wants to use us as sort of a beacon of light in the dark world in which we live, let's begin in uh, verse 1. Remember, we're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. We're told that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, I realize that throughout our study here in Acts, I've failed to give you guys sort of a, a map to document Paul's travel, so I made up for it. Um, <laughs> You know the beginning of the second missionary journey started in Antioch, and as we made our way through the second missionary journey, we remember he went to uh, Derby, and then uh, he immediately left because of a riot that was forming to Lystra, and then the people from Derby chased him uh, down to Lystra, or up to Lystra and um he escaped to the port of Troas and made his way over to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Now he's entering into the Macedonian area. And then we read that he went to Thessalonica, Berea, and then he went down to Athens. This is where he split up with Timothy and Silas. And he went to Athens alone. And eventually made his way to Corinth after speaking at the Areopagus. And then we'll find out later that Timothy and Silas then joined him from Macedonia down in Corinth. There you go. Hopefully you're satisfied. (laughs) Now, we're told that he went to the city of Corinth, which was an interesting city. Um, In the ancient world, it was renowned as a wealthy port city. Uh, It was a small isthmus that separated uh, the two seas. And uh, what they did was they would actually port at the city of Corinth, which was located on this one-mile isthmus, and they would actually put these wood boards across the isthmus, which was about a mile long, and they would take oxen to drag these ships over land onto the other side of the sea. And this would actually save uh, sailors about 200 miles of journeying, voyaging through really rough and treacherous water south of the Peloponnese. And so it saved travelers about two or three days of pretty tough travel. And it took maybe a day or two to get uh, across the isthmus. And so people would disembark and uh, spend time in the city. It boasted one of the largest populations in the ancient world. To give you sort of an idea, at the time, Rome was probably the largest city in the ancient world containing about a million people. And Corinth had about 750,000 people at its peak. So this was a metropolitan, you know, big city probably on the the size or scale of Columbus, Ohio, which is, I think, currently at around 800,000 people in our city limits. So this was a big city um, in the ancient world. It was also regarded as a center of intellectual activity. A lot of the ideas that were being generated in Athens actually would drift uh, westward toward Corinth, and so they were partially uh, in the middle of the action in terms of just uh, thought, And also it was famed for its its Isthmian Games. This was sort of like the Olympics, but this would attract people throughout the ancient world where competitors would come and um, compete for several days. And uh, it was known throughout the ancient world. It also contained a large pantheon of gods, just like Athens, with its principal temple dedicated to Aphrodite. Now, the ruins of this temple still exist in in Corinth today. From what we can tell in ancient history, the worship of Aphrodite involved a thousand temple prostitutes that resided in the temple. Typically what would happen is families would dedicate their usually prepubescent daughter to the temple for a life of service. And worship of Aphrodite often involved having sex with these temple prostitutes. And so it was pretty savage. These young girls, you know, some of them 12, 13 years old, being serially raped by people coming to worship at the temple. And at night, these girls would uh, double as prostitutes in order to make money. Corinth was a pretty bad place to live in. Idols, just like Athens. It was extremely immoral. Uh, this place made Las Vegas seem like Disneyland. You know, when a, when sailors have been traveling for months on sea, you know how they get when they when they uh, finally disembark on uh, you know land. Uh, they got a money or they've got a pocket full of money and uh, time on their hands, and so they, you know, would, would party nonstop. And since they were in Corinth, they probably decided, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for me to do some worship at the temple there in a- uh, uh, that was dedicated to Aphrodite. And so this place was uh, pretty raw. In a word, really, this city was marked by moral anarchy and self-indulgence. I mean, this place was so bad that the Romans actually coined a term to Corinthianize. They they turned the city name into a verb which described to do immorality. Now, it's not like the Romans were shy about, you know, doing raw stuff. Uh, so for the Romans to call the Corinthians uh, immoral people says something. In fact, uh, they referred to somebody as a Corinthian if they were a harlot or a prostitute. So, this place was world-renowned, not only for its wealth, it wasn't just renowned for its um, intellectual thought, but also its immorality. And you would think in a city like this that Paul would have a very difficult time, that he would meet a lot of opposition. And yet, uh, it seems like he was able to, to win lots of people to Christ, which suggests that people seem the furthest from God sometimes show the least resistance to Christ. That might surprise some people. You know, I think that when we encounter people who we know party nonstop during the weekends, who are out getting laid, you know, seven ways till Sunday... We just avoid them and think, "Man, there's just no way this person's going to even give me a hearing about Christ." And yet, sometimes those very people are the ones who are most receptive to God. As it turns out, when you give your yourself over completely to a lifestyle of self-indulgence, your need level tends to rise a lot quicker. You know, in our culture today, people just feel this sense of hopelessness and despair. And really, when you look at their lives, it's marked by gaining a sense of meaning through a collection of experiences, whether that's sexual experiences, whether that's a travel experience, whatever it may be. And the whole thought is to try to keep your eyes focused on what's happening right now, living in the moment, rather than, you know, looking further down and asking the bigger questions of what does my life even mean? And yet I think people sense that something is missing in their lives. And Paul probably was encountering many people just like that in Corinth who sense their need for God. And so I think for us, those of us who are interested in serving God, I think it's important for us to understand that we shouldn't shy away from people just because you know, they're, they're deeply involved in a lifestyle of partying, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever it may be. I think that we shouldn't uh, look at those people and think, well, they're just not receptive. There's no way to know that. And some of us have even come from that background where we are deeply unhappy, we are involved in that kind of lifestyle, and there was this sense of longing in our heart for something more. And we found ourselves feeling this sense of relief when somebody finally shared to us that there was real hope in the world. I know that, w- that was the way it was for me. That might be one of the reasons why when Jesus spent time during his ministry, he, he seemed to gravitate toward the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who were the ostracized of society. might be because he sensed that those people would see their need more clearly than those who are the, the good people, the religious Well, there in Corinth he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. So Paul meets this dynamic couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And Luke actually gives us some interesting details about where they're coming from. We're told that Aquila came from this place called Pontus, located on the southern part of the uh, Black Sea. And then at some point, he migrated west to Italy. And then from Italy, he either met his wife Priscilla there, or maybe on the way over to Corinth. But we know, based on ancient history, that at one point, Emperor Claudius had deported all of the Jews from Rome. Suetonius, the famous Roman historian in his work, Life of Claudius, says as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished them from Rome. So apparently these Jews, whom Luke refers to, might have actually been Jewish believers in Christ. Now it's interesting because we don't know of Paul or any of the apostles going to Rome to plant a church. And most scholars actually believe that what happened was on the day of Pentecost when Peter spoke to the multitudes, many of whom were actually pilgrims who came from all parts of the world to Passover, that he actually was able to reach some Jewish um, believers from Rome and that they eventually migrated back to Rome and planted a church there in Rome. And at one point, Claudius banished them uh, because they were causing an uproar because of uh, Christ. And so Priscilla and Aquila might have been some of those Jewish believers who uh, then traveled to Corinth. So you see little details like this, which I, I believe are very interesting in the book of Acts, that seem to connect with what we see in ancient history. You know, one of the major accusations you hear today is the Bible is completely unhistorical. That there are tons of anachronisms contained in the Bible. And yet we see small details like this in the book of Acts, which lends credibility to its historicity. Uh, Later, we find out that this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, actually become great workers for Christ. And Paul probably spent some time to train these guys in Christian work to make them more effective. In fact, he says he refers to them not only as his fellow workers, but also those who risk their own neck for me. So these guys were really committed, totally sold out for God. And it's interesting, too, that in Romans, Paul actually refers to Priscilla first. In the ancient world, the most prominent person was mentioned first. And... Past Acts 18, we see that the New Testament writers refer to Priscilla and Aquila, putting her first. And so she might have been the more dynamic of the two. Well, in verse 3, we're told, Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. So they had a lot in common. Both of them, uh, both Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, were able to sew these tents. Now, these tents were constructed from leather. And so it was. A, it was a very. It required a lot of skill to construct these tents, and the, in the ancient world, we know that rabbis would actually encourage their disciples to learn a trade, and so they would learn a trade, earn some money in a city, and they would actually help pay for the rabbi to go and travel and uh, live with them. And so Paul apparently picked up tent making. And uh, live that way. And so Paul would sew tents by day and make a uh, living. And then as soon as evening came, he would wash up, put his stuff away, and then he would start preaching. And he would do that every single day while he was in Corinth. Part of the reason why he did this was because people were actually accusing him of preaching the message of Christ... For a prophet. And this was common in the ancient world where these sophists, these traveling philosophers and ethicists would go around preaching these new ideas, these new philosophies, and there was an expectation that they would get money from the people that, who were listening. So the Corinthians were actually launching these accusations. This guy, he's just another sophist like these other guys who've come through town, and he's just preaching this new, different ethic. And Paul was so offended by that thought that he actually said that he wasn't going to take any donations, any money from the Corinthians, so that he would be above reproach to avoid any accusation that he was doing this for money. And so Paul renounced his right to receive support because of this accusation. It's interesting, he did this in other places too, apparently in Thessalonica there was an accusation that he was doing the same thing. So he actually refused to even take a meal without paying for it. You know, imagine inviting the Apostle Paul over to dinner. The Apostle Paul being like, hey, why don't you have some dinner? You know, I I cooked you this awesome meal. He's like, oh yeah, that's great. And so he shows up and, you know, you're rolling out all this stuff. And, you know, as as he's looking over the table filled with food, he reaches into his uh, wallet, pulls out a ten, and throws it down on the table. And you're like, well, "What's that?" And he's like, "It's for dinner tonight." You're like, "Oh come on, you're the Apostle Paul. I mean, I, I can't take that. That's just not appropriate." And he's like, "No, I insist." You're like, "No, no, no, no. Seriously, you should take this back. You know." And you hand him the ten-dollar bill, and he's like, "Put that in your pocket. Otherwise, I'm walking out." <laughs> you're like, oh, "Okay, well, all right." <laughs> that's hardcore and uh, but that's the stance that he took because he wanted to demonstrate integrity he wanted to make sure that people didn't think that he was just doing this to make money and i think it's important for those of us who want to shine like a bright light in this dark world to show integrity especially in the area of money you know you think today in our culture People don't even bat an eye when they hear a new scandal about a televangelist who has been lining their pockets off the backs of these vulnerable people in their congregation. You, know, you see these pictures of them stepping out of their private jet or aerial photos of their palatial mansion that's lined, their driveway's lined with Maseratis and Bentleys. And uh, most people today are very cynical about preachers. They just say, well, you know, most Christian leaders and preachers, they're just out for money. They're, they're just taking advantage of people. And I remember uh, the first Bible study I went to here. It was very interesting. Uh, the guy who leads our, uh, you know, one of our uh, studies here, he uh, rattled up in his uh, 15-year-old Honda Civic. I remember my jaw just dropping as this, you know, rust bucket was skiddling along the driveway. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> as I got to know him, I remember, I, you know, he invited me to go to a convenience store with him, so I jumped in the car, and I remember, you know, sneering at how crappy his car is, and he looked at me, he's like, dude. He's like, this car's awesome. <laughs> he's like, it's got air conditioning, it's got a radio, a CD player. He's like, it eventually gets up to 75 miles an hour. <laughs> and he's like, and it gets 35 miles to the gallon. And uh, I was just like, whatever, dude, you know? And uh, he drove that thing for another five years. And then uh, he noticed that the ga- there was a, a real small gas leak in his car. Every time you'd walk in there, it just smell like gasoline. And uh, I remember riding with him one time, and I just felt really uncomfortable because the fumes were just, you know, making me a little bit nauseous and dizzy. But apparently he had tabulated that even though there was a gas leak, he was still getting 30 miles to the gallon, so he kept driving it for another year. I'm like, uh, you know, that's cool you're saving money, but you, your car is like a rolling Molotov cocktail. It's dangerous, man. Seeing that sort of raised some questions for me about him. But one thing I never questioned, (laughs) one thing I never questioned about him was his motive behind sharing the message of Christ. It's clear it was never about money. And for me, that really, I think, melted away a lot of the uh, misconceptions I had about Christians that they, you know, especially the preachers, were all about money trying to take from people. And so it's important, I think, in our culture, especially a culture like ours, which shows tons of cynicism toward Christianity to remain above reproach as people who have integrity. Well, we're told that each Sabbath, they found Paul in the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all of his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So apparently, he was reunited with his buddies Silas and Timothy after being separated for maybe several months at this point. And they probably came with a gift from Macedonia, a financial gift that allowed Paul to be able to share the message of Christ full time. We get indications from this in Philippians chapter 4. Where he says to the Philippians, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church even did this. When I went to the- uh, even when I went to Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. So apparently no other churches gave him support except for the Philippian church. And it's likely they gave Silas and Timothy this great gift in order to free up Paul to, to preach the message of Christ. But we're told that when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads, for I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go and preach to the Gentiles. So Paul did what Jesus prescribed to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, when he sent out the 72 disciples, two by two. He said, when you enter into a town and nobody even welcomes you, he says, go to the edge of the town and shake the dust off your clothes of that town. And it was sort of symbolic of this level of accountability that they were now under because they had heard the message of Christ. And he says that he went on to preach to the Gentiles. So he shifted his focus over to those people who would give him a hearing. And I think that's important because it it tells us that the Apostle Paul sought out receptiveness that he was looking for people who were open to the message of Christ. He didn't insist on these people listening to him. He didn't keep sharing the message of Christ until they were finally open. He understood that his responsibility wasn't to make them receptive, but to simply faithfully declare the message of Christ. And I think in the same way, this leads us to another point about being a light to this dark place that we live in, that we should move on if people don't want to give us a hearing about the message of Christ. And I think there are a number of reasons why we should do this. First of all, it shows respect for their free will. You know, God does not impose himself upon people. He respects people's free will. He doesn't force us to have a relationship with him. And in the same way, it's inappropriate for us to portray God as the type of person who wants to shove the message of Christ down people's throats. That we should respect that people are free to choose whether they want to be in a relationship with God. Secondly, battering people with the message of Christ might actually inoculate them from the truth. You know, hearing the message of Christ grates against human pride because it suggests that We need to humble ourselves and accept the handout that God wants to give us. You know, that concept that we've talked about here, this this concept of grace, that word, you could probably translate that handout. God wants to give you a handout of salvation, which bothers us. We don't want a handout. We want something that we can earn through our good works. And so... When we hear the message of Christ, it's, it bothers us. It irritates us. It's polarizing. It's kind of like, you know, walking out of a matinee movie. You know, you've been sitting in the darkness, and then you come out into the light, and it's just like, oh, you know? And it's the same way when you hear the message of Christ. There's just It, it, it has this polarizing effect on us, which in a way is good because... We need to realize that we need God. And yet, when we continually hear the message of Christ and resist it, we can actually harden our heart to what God says. So by insisting that people listen, even though they might not be open, we might actually be doing more harm than good, causing them to be more resistant to the message of Christ. Third, focusing our attention on unreceptive people may prevent us from seeing those who might be open to spiritual things. By setting, you know, a laser-like focus on one or two individuals that we're trying to reach out to and, and just insisting that they turn to Christ, we might be missing out on opportunities that God might be providing. So it's important for us to just move on. And you know, these people who we care about, that we want to see come to Christ, we need to trust God's sovereignty. That maybe now is not the right time. Maybe the investment's going to require years, not weeks or months. Or maybe that when we have an encounter with somebody who shows a lot of resistance to Christ, maybe God is taking that person along a process that might take years before they eventually come to faith. Maybe your job was to take that person from like negative 15 receptiveness to like negative four. I mean, that's perfectly good. Well, then he left and went to the home of Tidious Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. So apparently, he experienced some opposition in the synagogue and so he set up shop right next door. That's kind of like Setting up a taco stand right next to a Mexican restaurant. You know, everybody who was coming by, he was sharing the message of Christ, competing with the synagogue, and eventually he ended up winning a number of people to Christ. We're told Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. So Crispus, probably as he was heading to the synagogue one day, was hearing the message of Christ. and was like, that's intriguing. And so he stopped and started talking to Paul and eventually was persuaded about Christ. Well, one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. It's interesting that Luke inserts this into the narrative. It's not something that you would imagine Paul experiencing, fear. But God apparently comes to him in a vision to give him encouragement and tells him, don't be afraid. Now, there might be a number of reasons why he was afraid. One might be that he was Intimidated by the moral anarchy in this city. Remember, Paul was a devout Jew. He was among this class of Jewish men who were called the Pharisees. These guys were very devout, very religious. So Paul was um, a righteous person by men's standards. And he probably walked into this city and just thought to himself, Oh my gosh. These people are crazy. This is like some new level sin, never seen before. So he might have been intimidated by that. And you know, I think that for some of us, especially those of us who grew up in this church, or maybe don't have a lot of exposure to you know the world, you know, you you walk into one of these campus parties and you're just like, what is going on here? makes you so uncomfortable because you've never experienced anything like that. Um, some of us, we might be like, oh, I'm at home. <laughs> 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 uh, I tend to fall into that category. I'm like, oh man, that's, that's just like uh, what it used to be like for me. But, um, you know, Paul, though, he was used to, he was, he was used to uh, sort of the religious way of life. And so being there might have caused him to feel uncomfortable it might be that he feared persecution. You know, God says to him, no one will attack you or harm you. If you read through the book of Acts, especially where Paul begins his missionary journeys, it, it sort of reads like a broken record. Paul enters the city. Some Jewish men rise up in, you know, to, to persecute him. They run him out of the city. Rinse, repeat, he goes to another city. It's just, it happens over and over again. And each time he experienced this, we read that he actually uh, met these tests with flying colors. Almost every time. You know, the, the case there in Philippi, where he was beaten, thrown in jail. We're told that he sang with joy, praising God, even while he was sitting in stocks in the inner cells of the Philippian jail. And so Paul might have gotten to a place where he... Started to get kind of, it started to wear down on him. He started to become afraid of this happening everywhere he went. We might experience some of the same thing where every time it seems like we share the message of Christ, we we get a lot of opposition. Maybe people have ridiculed us for our beliefs, or maybe they've shunned us because of uh, us sharing Christ with them. And so maybe we feel this sense of reluctance to share the message of Christ. Also, it might be that uh, he feared the people in Corinth wouldn't give him a hearing. God says to him, for many people in this city belong to me. I'm not sure I like that translation as much as the New International version, Version, which says, don't be afraid for I have many people in this city. He identified people whose hearts were actually open to the message of Christ. And he he encourages them. He says, you're not going to fail in this mission. There are people here who want to hear the message of Christ. And your job is to faithfully share that message until you find those who are receptive. You know, the Corinthian people were very proud. This caused Paul to, to... have a sense of anxiety going into the city he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 and 3 he says for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling so he was intimidated that these guys were very prideful they were immoral and he probably identified them as people who would never listen to uh, to the message of Christ And yet, we're told that he just resolved to do nothing except to proclaim the message of Christ and him crucified. This leads us to a crucial point, which is that we shouldn't be afraid to share the message of Christ, even though the people we encounter may seem pretty far away from him. You know, we don't have to be clever. We don't have to have some genius argument to persuade people that they need Christ. God wants us to just faithfully share the message of Christ, the gospel, the good news about what he has done through his son Jesus. You know, the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ actually collides with human pride. It tells us that there's nothing that we can contribute either by our good works or uh resisting sin in our lives to bring us salvation but it's only through what God has done through Jesus Christ and so in a lot of ways you know we look at the situation Paul faced here in Corinth and there are many similarities to the situation we're facing right here down on campus people are have Many people down here on campus have given themselves over to a life of just pleasure and hedonism. Or, you know, you might encounter people who um, are intellectuals. Maybe they are, you know, graduate students and we feel intimidated like, oh, they just will never listen to this. They're not, what are they going to think if I tell them about Christ? They're going to laugh in my face. You know, the Corinthians, they uh, were a, a prideful people. We read in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul corrects the Corinthian believers. He says, don't you know that knowledge puffs up your chest? But he said, love builds up those who are in the body of Christ. So that was certainly one of the real problems that they struggled with. You know, in part because their city was beautiful. We're told in uh, ancient history that Julius Caesar and uh, Uh, 46 B.C., rebuilt the city, and it was stunning. And also, you know, they had lots to boast about. They were incredibly wealthy. They had those Isthmian games that were world-renowned. And so the people in Corinth were very proud. And that's why Paul said that not many of you were, were wise, not many of you were influential. Apparently, his message didn't go over too well with those from, like, the higher classes of Corinth. But it did resonate with those who uh, were stuck in this lifestyle of just, you know, addiction and hedonism. And so we shouldn't be afraid to share the message of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation. Well, we're told that Paul stayed there for a ne- the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. This was unusual for Paul. Usually whenever he, set up, he planted a church, he'd move on to another one. To another city and start sharing the message of Christ, but he spent some time here. And it might be that, um, you know, he realized that he needed to strengthen these believers. When Gallio became governor of Achaia, which uh, we should stop right there, this is another interesting chronological marker that Luke gives us. This guy, Gallio, we know about this guy from ancient history. And in fact, skeptics of the Bible have argued. That this shows that the book of Acts was written hundreds of years after the time that it was purported to have been written. Because we know that there were no pro- proconsuls in, A- uh, in Achaia. The different provinces were set up either by senatorial provinces or imperial provinces. The senatorial provinces had proconsuls or governors. And the imperial provinces had legates. And these would change over time. So critics of the Bible would say, here is another clear anachronism. And yet in the early 1900s, archaeologists discovered in Delphi, Greece, an inscription, one of the stones to, uh, dedicated to the, the god Apollo called the Delphi Stone, and it contains an inscription of Gallio. If you look at the third line there, it says to the proconsul Gallio, and it was, it was from Emperor Claudius. And we can reliably date this to AD 51 52. Again, we see the book of Acts snapping together with ancient history independently, further corroborating its authenticity. Well, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I'd have a reason to accept your case. But since it's merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. He's like, I don't want to waste my time on this. This is a religious argument between you guys. And so he dismissed the case. So he threw them out of the courtroom. And then the crowd grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, apparently the guy who replaced Crispus, and beat him right there in the courtroom. So apparently the mob who came with Sosthenes... Bringing accusations against Paul, when they were thrown out of the courtroom, they were so uh, upset and uh, maybe even um, embarrassed by what happened that they turned to Sosthenes, grabbed him, and just gave him a royal beatdown right there in the courtroom. And we're told that Gallio paid no attention. <laughs> So he's just sitting there just watching, you know, Sosthenes getting the crap beat out of him. And he's just like, you know, yawning like, okay, next, as this is happening. Well, there's an interesting postscript to this. Years later, Paul writes to the Corinthian uh, church and his greeting begins in typical fashion. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to the apostle of Jesus Christ and from our brother Sosthenes. Interesting. So, you know, after they uh, gave him a little stomping, Sosthenes was on the ground and Paul probably walked up to him and uh, gave him a hand to help him up. And he's like, so I guess that didn't work out so well for you, huh? And uh, started sharing the message of Christ. And eventually this guy came to Christ. Pretty awesome. Well, Paul stayed in Corinth for some some time after that. And then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. So, again, it's interesting that he spent some time there. Which I think points to how it requires maybe more time and patience to work with people coming from a Corinthian-like lifestyle. You know, we need to be patient with people coming from these rough backgrounds, people who are coming from this lifestyle of partying. It's hard to get rid of some of those behaviors. It's hard to see why God's way is the, actually the right way. You know, I can identify with this. I, I grew up, um, you know, uh, pretty far away from God, and I got into partying pretty hard early on in my life. And... Um, you know, when I first came to uh, Fellowship, when I first came here, I was, I was a mess. I had a lot of problems. I was just really cynical. I, was, I had an anger problem. I had a drinking problem. And, um, you know, people were so patient with me and just showed me a lot of love. And it took me many years to get to even the point where I could start serving people effectively. And so, it might be that Paul understood that these people are going to need more work. But the benefit of coming from this kind of background, this kind of Corinthian-like lifestyle, is that there's an appreciation of God's grace that's hard to be able to, to get from somebody who's never had that kind of experience. There he shaved his head according to the Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. It's likely that he took this Old Testament Nazarite vow, completed that. And then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. And they asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. Then he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. So there you have the second missionary journey. Now, to give you again an idea of where he was traveling, he was there in Corinth and then he went down south to Centria, and then over to Ephesus and then around down to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and then back up to Antioch, where he began his journey. Let's draw some points of application. I think it's pretty simple. The first point of application would be that God wants to meet you where you're at in your life. Some of you can relate to the Corinthian way of life. Some of you might be involved in the Corinthian way of life. You might have been even nervous to come here, because you're just like, People just don't know what kind of background I'm coming from and the stuff that I do. Well, as it turns out, God wants to meet you where you're at. He's not intimidated by the things that you're doing. And He's not asking you to quit those things before you turn to Christ. The first step toward knowing God is to admit that you, you need Him and that your life is not working. And the moment you see that, God opens up a window of opportunity for you to receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God loves you and cares about you deeply. And that He sent His Son Jesus in order to pay for all the wrongdoing you've done so that He can forge a relationship with you. And so you can do that tonight. You don't have to clean up your act or anything. Just turn to God with humility And receive his forgiveness. Secondly, God calls on us to shine like a beacon of light into the dark world in which we live. You know, we're not to retreat uh, from our culture or to be afraid. When you look at Jesus, he went into some of the darkest places of Israel to meet people where they were at. And we need to do the same thing. We need to have the same heart that God has for lost people, not in a self righteous way but in a way that, that brings compassion and empathy to where people are at. Knowing that without God, our lives would be lost too. And so, you should consider the things that we have put forward here from this passage and ask God to help us take steps in the direction of being the kind of light He wants us to be in this world. Thanks to you give us confidence when we share your good news with people, that it will have an impact, even though we may not see it in the moment. And um, we thank you that um, you call us to uh, be your ambassadors. And I pray that you would help us to represent you the way that you want us, uh, you want people to see in uh, the world. And um, Lord, I pray for those of us maybe who are right on the verge of possibly turning to you and and receiving Christ, I pray that we would just um, have the courage to admit that we need you and to uh, receive the forgiveness that you freely offer through Christ. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.